0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we are going to go to part three of our discipleship question 10 discussion. We've been working our way through 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, and so we're going to keep doing that. But before we do that, as always, we have some fakelings business to tend to.
1: Books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books, and I will go first. I am just going to mention a book. I've, I've ordered some books, kind of preparing for summer. Oh, man. And uh, so, yeah, a little bit left field. I'm so field excited. There.
2: Oh, I love your left field. And so <laughs> I'm just going
0: to mention a book that I, I heard about on another podcast. I ordered. It was very hard to obtain, and in fact, like it had only gone through one very limited print run years ago. Uh, the guy had a link on his website where you could purchase it. I put the link through like multiple forms, never heard back from him. And then months, months later, he emailed and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just got so behind because I got a bunch of requests for this book because this podcast did a thing on it. Oh, no way. And, and he's oh. like, so I will send you two books for the price of one and mm. I will sign them. So I have two of these. Um, Ooh. and, uh,
1: so who's the better friend?
0: Uh, I well, okay. I doubt, <laughs> I doubt that my brother listens to this, but I think that's going to be a birthday present to my brother. Michael, if you just heard me say that this is your birthday present, I'm kidding. That's not going to be a <laughs> birthday present.
2: Anyway, so Charlie, your, your nose got longer.
0: Mm-hmm, <laughs> touched my mic there. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, the name of the book is Holt Collier, his life is Roosevelt hunts and the origin of the teddy bear. So, uh, the reason we call a teddy bear a teddy bear?
1: Teddy Roosevelt, right? Is
0: Teddy Roosevelt went on a bear hunt. Oh. And he famously had the opportunity to kill a bear, but did not do it on the first hunt. And so it was like political cartoon, like, oh, Teddy, like little Teddy didn't want to kill the bear. Like, and was like there's a cartoon that got put out about it. The guide of that bear hunt was this African-American man, Holt Collier, hmm. and he has a very interesting backstory.
1: Interesting. And
0: so, as the title announces, this is his life, his Roosevelt hunts, and the origin of the teddy bear. So, we're going to get into all of those stories. Fascinating character. If you want to do a little Google on him, hit a little Wikipedia on him. Easy. Um, Holt Collier fought as a black man, fought in the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, and so you can. Uh, he was an infantryman for a cavalryman for the Texas Infantry or whatever you call him. Uh, very proud of that fact, and and uh, so very interesting character. It hits a lot of things that I like: hunting, history, books. So heard about another podcast. Looking forward to reading it. Holt Collier, his life, his Roosevelt hunts, origin of the Teddy bear.
1: Awesome. I'm uh, going to talk about Beyond Chapter and Verse, The Theology and Practice of Biblical Application by Ken Casillas. Uh, I mentioned this po- book on a podcast uh, on an episode earlier, and I want I wanted to revisit it. Probably um, the first three chapters, the first section of the book is kind of like a, a bibliology. Um, the I didn't really appreciate the first, I don't know, what was it, like five chapters or so is it's kind of, uh, what are you guys laughing at?
0: I'm just trying to make book page sounding noises with my microphone.
1: Okay. It's better
0: than turkey noises.
1: So anyway, it got really good though. The first, so if you, if you do pick up this book, which I would recommend it, it helps you to think through how to apply the Bible. Uh, and he provides a method at the end, which I also thought was helpful. Uh, but if you do pick it up, just remember, you know, those first several chapters, uh, especially if you've studied theology a fair amount, they're kind of elementary content elementary theology uh, in those first five-ish chapters but then it started things started to pick up he talked about sanctification he talked about the heart and how how the the extent of the law or the law extends to the heart get my words straight here the law of god extends to the heart everybody in is going to m- agree with that jesus communicated that message in the sermon on the mount the issue isn't adultery the issue is that you're you have a heart desire that is wrong. Uh, so uh, that the law gives explicit commands concerning behavior was is only a physical manifestation of a sinful heart attitude. So thus, anytime that we're thinking through biblical application, our target is not the external conformity, but the internal transformation, something we've talked about a lot on our podcast uh, so, so we're not being a legalist to apply the biblical commands to heart conditions. In fact, that's what is expected of the believer. To do that, uh, one of the things you have to be able to do, or that you need, is the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, which is one of his chapters as well. And I think he has a proper understanding of illumination. And Studying through 1 Corinthians 2 is a great passage for you to work through as you think through how the believer should be able to discern the truths of Scripture and apply them to their heart, uh, to their life, uh, about how the carnal, the unbeliever, the natural man, I should say, cannot do so. All right, so uh, that's kind of uh, a little bit about the book. Uh, Its target is the heart, but it discusses the actual application of the law. And I particularly like the book because Casillas is an Old Testament guy, so he was in the Old Testament a lot. He has a section about applying the spirit of the law, and he—I I mentioned this on the last podcast episode, but I'm going to just do it again. He—he he used the illustration of Boaz and how Boaz is not the brother uh, um, you have in in the narrative, but you have Mahlon, Mahlon married Ruth. Uh, Machlon died, and so Machlon's brother is supposed to marry Ruth. Machlon doesn't have a brother because both of the brothers die. Uh, so a natural implication of the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomy 25, that a brother is supposed to marry the, the, the widow of a near relative, a natural implication is that, well, if all the brothers are dead, then who should do it? Should be the next closest mm. relative. Now, who was the next closest relative? Well, it was the John Doe of John of Ruth chapter four, and he doesn't do it, so Boaz then does it. I mean, think about all of the implications of God's law being applied in that passage. There's not an explicit command that's being obeyed. It's an Im- implication. And furthermore, Boaz is not just pointing the finger at the other guy saying, hey, well, it's his responsibility. He needs to do it. And he's not doing it. So, well, she's out of luck. You know, he, he then applies it to himself. Well, if the next closest relative won't do it, then it falls upon the next mm-hmm relative. And, and so I just think that's really telling is uh, and, and helpful for a believer to think through okay uh, as I look at this old crazy law in the Old Testament how would it apply to my life well you you're gonna have to have some spiritual wisdom and understanding that sounds like something Paul prayed for on a, for the church on a regular basis um, and and then uh, and then apply that text okay so, and um, he goes through a lot of those illustrations, and I found it really helpful. Uh, he works with a definition of legalism. Legalism is an attitude or motive that leads people to try to establish, maintain, or improve a righteous standing before God by their own activities. So are we trying to improve our standing before God? Now here's something for that I also he interacted with, and this is one of the things I liked about the book, and it kind of introduced me to the topic that I need to study it a little bit more. When you are living in sin, how is your relationship with God? Well, not the best. Exactly. Now, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ as your personal savior, you still have a relationship with God. But that relationship with God uh, is not the best. Okay. Well, how can you improve your relationship with God?
2: Psalm 51. Confession and repentance. Oh,
1: look at that. So you can actually improve your relationship with God? Oh, no, you can you
2: can take away the problem that's causing the division.
1: Okay, or, so what did I just do there? You switched the question up. Ooh. You switched it up without telling me. Okay, so when we think through tricky, legalism... tricky. <laughs> when we think through... Tricky little hobby. Well, man. even just this idea of legalism, okay, so... What is it that legalism is seeking to do? Well, furthermore, if you are a believer and you're living a righteous and holy life, then what is your relationship with God? The way the Bible wants it yeah, to be. Yeah, it's the way it's supposed to be. Okay, You are in, living in the Spirit, you're living a holy life, but if you are are living in sin, <clears throat> or even if you are being sanctified and you're growing closer and closer to God... Okay, What is that connected to then, growing closer and closer to God and living a holy life, doing things? Anyway, he plays around with this idea of how, what is legalism? Well, what is legalism is I am going to be a holy person to improve my relationship with God. But if you live a holy life, what does that do with your relationship with God?
2: You're going to have to spell it out for me.
1: Well, it's you're just to to like, it's like it. a semantic. I, th- I think game. I see
0: where you're going. Because yeah, th- on one side, you're looking at the same activities, uh-huh. doing holy action, obedience, etc. Correct. And then legalism looks at that negatively. Right. But then on the other side, like that's just growing doing more things that God wants you to do and precisely your so yeah
1: it's, so you're improving your relationship with God yeah. if we want to use that terminology which we really don't like <laughs>
0: well I think hmm. the, the key for the legalism comes into
1: like, ah justification oh, exactly yeah that, that, all right okay so you're tr- you're tricking us here because growing up that's how I thought of legalism right it's connected to justification but no, a lot of people the no, other way say it again well like growing up is this our episode now (laughs) no
0: yeah you're just
2: gonna have to i I don't think i'm following you
0: he's saying that some people look at legalism and they're like oh legal that's legalistic you're doing these things to improve your relationship with god right and like that's negative don't do that bad but someone who's growing what are they doing okay they're doing things to improve their relationship with God and it's not legalism.
1: It's not. You're just trying to live a holy life. It's a different perspective on the
0: same thing. It's the
2: motivation. Okay. I'm following you now. Sorry. For a minute there, I was getting confused. Like, I thought you were saying the opposite.
0: I'm like, well, Tim, someone could be, someone could be pridefully motivated. Yes. Yeah. To do the holy things. Right. And it has nothing to do with their justification. Correct. It is sanctification, and it would still be wrong.
1: Yes. And yes. So, so that's it's very, where...
0: It's a very nuanced conversation.
1: Correct. And he gets into that nuance. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I really liked about the book. That's one of the things I really liked about the book.
0: Only Siths deal in absolute...
1: <laughs> It's horrendous Whoa. that's always okay. legalistic so oh, i've been okay, going Sif lord i've been going for a while so i'm going to wrap this up on page 254 hey, you're wearing a
0: star wars shirt that's not that's, wow deep fake
1: <laughs> on page 254 he has a little chart where he kind of lays out the model you study a text what is the historical meaning then you transition to the transhistorical meaning, so bring it into the modern world through the New Testament as well, if it's an old testament text, and then you communicate the significance of that text to the current life. But also within that, there are implications of the text that must be logically valid and logically sound uh, that connect to the modern life. So I really, I thought it was uh, a helpful uh, study so, and, a, and a helpful quick read.
0: Quick comment before Go. Eddie. So those terms there, significant, significances mm-hmm. and implications, those aren't just flippant words being used. Those those have some hermeneutical weight to them in a sense of those are terms that people use mm-hmm. because they don't want to say meaning, like meaning and significance, those terms are very mm-hmm. similar, mm-hmm. but someone from a hermeneutical standpoint doesn't want to say, oh, that's what the passage means in a modern context, which would then be a different meaning than the original. So they adopt different terms that are similar to do that. So it's that's not the meaning of the text. That's the significance of the text. So I'm hermeneutically not saying there's multiple meanings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- right. That's no. why he's using words like that. Yes. So yep. th- again, that's a nuanced... Hermeneutical language, mm-hmm. so because I've read that book too.
1: So yep. So would you rank it? Or I not? would put this uh, <coughs> uh, maybe.
0: Uh, I'm gonna. I have my fingers up, and I'm gonna see if you're gonna <laughs> have the same ranking. You're just gonna be like two points higher.
1: I'm gonna probably be like a six.
0: Okay. <gasps>
1: you're at a six. I had
0: six fingers held up yeah. under the table that he didn't see.
1: So it's but, it's not a hard read, and and uh, it's written more to like a lay level, but it's kind of big and and wordy, so. It sounds like it would
2: be a good book for intro to Bible study for the application aspect of
1: the method we teach. Even if you grab just a few of the chapters, maybe.
2: Yeah, that's not a bad. I like that. I might, I might uh, peruse or scan that later. So, well, for my books and business this week, I'm actually just going to give you uh, listeners a life update and then ask for a prayer request. Um, In January, my wife was diagnosed with cancer and it's a type of cancer called a Ewing sarcoma. She had a very large bump on her leg near her knee and we went in to get it checked with an MRI and all these tests. And the long story short version is that she's going to have to have chemotherapy and then she's going to have to have a surgery to remove the tumor. And then she's going to have to have more chemotherapy and the chemotherapy is going to last. It started in February and it's going to actually March. I'm trying to think when this whole thing has been going on with tests and whatnot since January, but I think it was, we began early March and it's going to take her all the way into October and it's going to be in every other week schedule. It's going to be pretty intense. And so anyways, if you would keep the Stearns family in your prayers, that would mean a lot to us. Uh, the prognosis is good. They do think you can be cured of this. And if she can go through these treatments, it should cure her. Um, concerns would be what kind of a surgery they're going to do uh, to deal with this, the tumor area. And so what the long-term recovery would be or ramifications. So if you'd pray about that, and then, um, it's going to be a pretty grueling treatment. They said it's, they have to be very aggressive and they're doing that because they do think that they can cure her, which is not always the case with all cancers. So we're thankful uh, for that, but it's obviously very hard news for our family. The other thing I should let you know about is that because of this, you might be stuck with the other two guys at the table sometimes, and I might be absent from the podcast. We'll obviously try to use Zoom and make every effort for me to be here, but there just may be times where you're not going to hear my voice, and I'm totally fine with that because I have total confidence in both of these guys. My fingers are not crossed behind my back or under the table.
1: So, Anyways, uh, thank you for your prayers. We appreciate your prayers. And as you think through praying for the Sterns, of course, pray for Robin and her healing. Uh, But also remember to pray for Andy. Uh, He isn't going to ask specifics and so on and so forth, but he's got to be super dad here for the next six plus months. And they have two small children who are going to watch their mother go through this. So pray for them as well. And uh, that would be an encouragement to all of us.
0: All right. Where uh, I'm usually really good at segues. This is a tough segue.
2: (laughs) Can I make the segue?
0: Yeah. Make the segue for us.
2: So listener, I've been living with this since late December and we've walked the path of cancer before. And there is something that you need to know about having a big situation like this happen is your life doesn't end. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop. Like you keep living. And so this is big news for the Sterns, but we got podcast episodes to record and you just keep serving the Lord and taking Mm -hmm. the next step forward. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep going on our episode.
0: And a great thing to do is to always go to God's word. So we're going to go to second Corinthians. Amen. And we're going to continue our conversation about uh, our 10th discipleship question, uh, which the, so if you, if you want to kind of reverse yourself, we've had two other episodes where we've talked about this. This is like famous in my classes where I always say, it's going to take this many class periods to walk through this, and it always takes an extra one. And so um, I actually just started through a lecture on this this morning. So like our Discipleship Question 10, Part 1, a couple of my students got that this morning. So it's fresh in my mind. And we're going to continue with Part 3. And uh, you can go back and listen to those previous episodes. I'm just going to run down through what we have covered. So... Uh, We're looking at Paul's ministry philosophy, and we first looked at kind of the context of these letters. There's a very nuanced, intricate relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. There's some opposition present there. Uh, They're accusing him of maybe not being credible. Uh, They're looking at his announcements of his travel plans in chapter one, and they're like, you said you were going to come, and you didn't come, and he's commenting on that. And it's kind of in that discussion of some travel plans in chapter two, where he launches into this digression. And I think he's intending to explain to the, his recipients why he did what he did or why he's okay doing what he's doing. And if you remember back, he, he leaves an open door in Troas to search for Titus, but he's like, you know, everywhere I go, ministry happens. And that was kind of our first point, uh, first idea in Paul's ministry philosophy is that ministry happens everywhere. And it's like a smell being diffused out from you. Christ and the knowledge of Christ is this sweet smelling aroma to God. And Christ leads us in victory. And in that victory parade, we diffuse that aroma everywhere we go. And thinking about that illustration of smell, he asked a question. Well, who can be a diffuser of the aroma of the knowledge of Christ? Who's sufficient for these things? And his answer, nobody was sufficient. God makes us sufficient. So God is doing something to produce that aroma in us. And as we go to wherever we go, that aroma goes out. Some people smell it and it's life. Some people smell it and it's death. That's kind of the first idea was that ministry happens everywhere as God makes insufficient people sufficient. And that diffuses this aroma. As he kind of pivots from that first idea, he's going to answer a question about how That sufficiency happens. And so the second point we've looked at in part two was that ministry sufficiency is produced by God. And he, like any great Bible teacher at this point, he completely changes his illustration and goes on another point. So we were talking about smell. Forget that. We're going to talk about something else now. We're going to talk about light. That's illustration number two that he starts talking about. This is where he starts bringing in Moses from Exodus 34. And he's like, you know, Moses was in the presence of God and it changed his face. So if we're in the presence of God, we behold the glory of God, shouldn't that change us? Hmm. And shouldn't the change in us, because it's the spirit, it's the new covenant, it's the gospel. Shouldn't the change in us be far greater than the change that was produced in the giving or reception of the law? And so he argues from lesser to greater, like, yeah, we should see and sees kind of in air quotes. There should be evidence of that greater change. And he starts talking about Moses and the veil they put over Moses' face. And he builds this metaphor out of Moses' veil. And eventually he says that like Moses had a veil over his face, there's a veil on people's hearts, that they're spiritually dead, and they need to turn to Christ, and the veil of their heart is removed. And then once that has happened, uh, the Lord uh, is the Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and with an unveiled face we behold the glory of God. Just like Moses had an unveiled uh, face and beheld in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, we behold the glory of God even clearer through Christ, and we are transformed into the same image. And uh, that—that's kind of is—that is how the sufficiency happens. Where does the smell come from? Well, God has removed the veil from our hearts. We behold his glory. And there's, there's an implication like being in the presence of God changes us. And so being united to Christ through mm. our turning to him and then our, our continual sanctification where we yield to him transforms and it produces uh, the light of the glory of Christ, <laughs> the smell, the aroma of Christ. That's where we're going to get to part three. Sorry for a long review, but I think that's helpful. Uh, The the next part here is that uh, we're still talking about that ministry sufficiency. Uh, But so how is it produced? We behold his glory and the spirit transforms us. This next point in Paul's philosophy of ministry is that that ministry sufficiency or transformation or aroma or light or the change in our character or our sanctification All of those synonyms, that sufficiency that God produces motivates and encourages gospel proclamation, even in the presence of gospel opposition. That's the next part of this. And really, the the verses we're focusing on is in chapter four. And so let's uh, get some uh, collaboration together here. Let's read. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 4. 1 through 6, and then I'll prompt our other thinklings here with some questions. So, 2 Corinthians 4, one. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hmm. All right. Tim, you looked like you had a comment in the midst of that. Before I ask any questions.
1: I was in the one. wrong book. So okay. I was in 1 Corinthians. I was wondering where you were at, but I figured it out. So <laughs> I'm good Corinthians now. Corinthians 4. That, <laughs> that
0: was great. Okay. So looking at those first couple. He's not,
2: he's not used to the New Testament. It's, yeah, it's kind of new territory. Yeah, he's an He doesn't you know, know Greek. He's, yeah. anyway. um, he's actually really good at Greek. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For an OT prof. He's better than I am in Hebrew. Tomato, tomato. That doesn't take Uh, much.
0: Anyway. Oh, that hurts. Wow. So question. Since they have the ministry. So you see in verse one, having Mm -hmm. this ministry and this ministry is referring right back into chapter three, Mm -hmm. the ministry of God's spirit that is transforming us because we have an unveiled heart. We behold the glory of God. And I would say in his word. So since we have that happening, the aroma being produced the light being produced, the glory of God being produced in our hearts because of that ministry. What is, what are the implications or ramifications of having that ministry? And wow, why
2: you... the way you asked that question immediately helped me to see the two, like two, right. Th- two of them right there. Yeah. So what do you see? Well, the first one is you don't lose heart. That's so interesting. The fact, wow. The fact that you have this ministry keeps you from giving up and losing heart. Yes. Man.
0: And so the way I like to say that is, you know, this comes up in discipleship conversations all the time. What is the motivation? What keeps me motivated to, yeah, share the gospel, but then disciple within our churches? Hmm. This ministry. Hmm. Hmm. God changing me. And Tim, Hmm. you earlier were talking about, well, what happens if you don't have a good relationship with God? Hmm. You're not very motivated to share the gospel. Hmm. Not very Hmm. motivated to disciple people. Uh, if you're not confessing sin, you're not communing with God in his word, you do not have the affections for these things. Hmm. But if you have that ministry and you're confident that you're standing sufficiency in ministry is not because of you, but look at how God is changing my life. You have that, you do not lose heart. It's a motivator for ministry. Uh, so that's a great one. But then looking into verse two, what else does it encourage or motivate?
1: What's up with the renouncing the hidden things of shame? What are the hidden things of shame? That's
2: what you do. You renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Mm. That's how the ESV says it. So when it comes to, because I have this ministry of being transformed and smelling like Christ to others, I renounce the wrong tactics of ministry that we see out all yes. over there. Man, that's crazy. Which is funny because what would motivate you to use those? You've lost heart and you're trying to get it to happen. And yep. so you're going to use the underhanded. Manipulation. Of what it's yeah. not working. So. Yeah, I got to try a new tactic. I got to rebrand. I got to yep. update. I got
0: whatever. And in the book, I actually Man. just read through this in chapters 10 and 11, questions 10 and 11 with a student this morning. And you can look like you're doing ministry, but it's actually with without the transforming aspect hmm. of God's Spirit, man. It's just manipulation.
1: Hmm. So the hidden things of shame.
0: So I think I think he's reading,
1: in, is that New, New King James, yeah.
0: Well, oh, I think I, that would go in kind of in conjunction with earlier in chapter end of chapter two, where we talked about being a peddler of God's word. Uh-huh. It's it's like a cheap trick, a salesman. It's like we're we're not as ministers or as disciples, We're not trying to like bait and switch you. We're not hiding something like I'm not going to try and sell you something. And then it's going to break right away and you're going to be upset. Yeah. Like, it's like, and he, he's going to get to that later on in that verse. It's like, it's an open statement of the truth. Okay. Like it's, it's again, it's highlighting character, but knowing how God is working in my heart motivates me to not practice sin.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, because if I'm practicing sin, the spirit's not in control, the glory is not being produced. Like I'm motivated to continue confessing and I think it doesn't use the term here. Um, the, the word for, um, renounce there is not the typical word that you would have for like repentance, mm-hmm. but I think theologically it's a very similar idea. You're, you're, you're renouncing, you're despising sinful tendency, especially in the proclamation of, of truth.
1: Hence the not walking in craftiness nor exactly. handling the word of God deceitfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I
2: think that's explaining it as I'm looking mm-hmm. at, I'm looking at the definitions. You renounce disgraceful unhanded ways. And then as an audience, as a reader, you're probably thinking, well, what are those ways? And then he annou- he, he, he answers it. We don't practice cunning and we don't tamper with God's word. We openly state it. Okay. I'm gonna back. Uh, that, that's oof.
0: yeah. So understanding how God is sanctifying us motivates or encourages us to continue in ministry and it also motivates and encourages us to continue in ministry the right way. Mm. And so you can see how this is bedrock in a ministry philosophy. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing it that way? Well, because I understand that really the, the big arbiter here, the, the master is God. And I am a slave to righteousness to use Roman six language. Hmm. And I need to <clears throat> stay yielded to the spirit of God. <laughs> like that is so vital to Paul. He's like, if I don't do this, aroma is gone. Like if I don't do this, there's no light. And so you can see, he, he took the time to build those metaphors hmm. and how they really become, uh, the driving force of what he's then building as a practice because of that smell and that light being so important. I have to turn from sin. I can't be crafty, deceitful. I have to just simply proclaim God's word, open statement of the truth and commend myself to your conscience that I'm a high character person that God is enabling. Hmm. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to commend myself, but God is making me sufficient Hmm. and I'm doing things the right way. And that should be clear based on the fruit of my life to you. Uh, So I think that's really important. Uh, And, it motivates Paul to stay in ministry and to do ministry the right way, even in the midst of opposition. And I think this really gets, uh, to use one of my favorite catchphrases, gets really spicy here. Yes. Because what we see is we see God's plan for ministry, and we also see the God of this world's plan to stop ministry. And it cent- it centralizes on this idea of light, and so, what does it say there? If you look back at the verses, he comes back to the veil again in verse three. Like Moses' is veil, the veil on our heart. This is a third way he employs the idea of veiling. And if our gospel is veiled, if the message we're openly proclaiming is veiled, I think the implication here is it's not veiled because of our character. It's not veiled because I'm a cunning craftsman. It's not veiled because I'm doing things the wrong way. Mm -hmm. It's veiled to those who are perishing because in their case, verse four, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the (laughs) unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what is our adversary doing to hinder or stifle ministry? He's, In view of unbelievers, trying to keep them from seeing the light. Now go back to the Moses idea. If you are in the presence of the glory of God, it changes you. You behold the glory, you become the glory. So the adversary is like, I don't want them to see any glory. Wow. Keep them blinded. That's fascinating. That is what the adversary is doing to stop ministry. So what is God doing to combat the adversary's plan and accomplish ministry? He's producing glory in us Hmm. and putting us around unbelievers. For what we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. How are we the servants of that? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, goes back to Genesis, let there be light. There's light for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. He's producing the aroma of mm-hmm. the glory in us by transforming us to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How does he give the glory, the light of the knowledge of Christ to other people? God's goal is to transform us. So that we display the character of Christ to other people. The way he summarizes that in verse seven, which we haven't read yet. We have this treasure in jars of clay. I'm a clay pot. I was made out of dust. I have nothing on my own, but God makes me sufficient. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Well, God puts something very Mm. precious in the vessel. He makes, produces the aroma. He produces the glory. Uh, he makes me like Christ from the inside out. And then God takes that vessel and he sets me down in any location. And some people see it, some people smell it, and it leads them to life. Some of them stay blind because our adversary wants them to stay blind. Uh, they reject the message, but others see the treasure in us and they see the surpassing power of God in the gospel. Uh, And so you can see Paul's ministry philosophy. Why does ministry happen everywhere? Because God is producing sufficiency in me everywhere. And because God is producing that in me everywhere, I'm bold and I'm turning from sin. I'm allowing the spirit to change me and people are watching God is setting that vessel down and my neighbors are watching. You think about the people in your community that watch you. Uh, maybe you have unsafe family members. They're, w- they're watching you. And uh, they should smell something. They should see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And when you recognize that your pattern of life is absolutely inseparable from your evangelistic effort, That should motivate you to every day engage in the gospel and to be sanctified, uh, to renounce sin, to confess so that the Spirit is the one in control. And if the Spirit's in control, uh, you should expect the fruit that He produces in Galatians 5, which we've looked at in previous questions. And if that fruit is happening, if you're loving people who are hard to love, if you're joyful when it's hard to be joyful, if you're patient and kind and, you know, insert all of the other virtues, uh, people see Christ. And uh, that, that right there uh, is the bedrock of Paul's evangelistic efforts, is his own sanctification. Uh, he wants God to shine his glory out from him as he renounces sin. Now, uh, we don't have time in this episode to continue where he's going But as we've already seen in our discipleship questions, how does God facilitate that change? He allows difficulty. And you can just maybe peek at verse 8 at where Paul is going to go. Response to trial is a part of Paul's ministry philosophy. In fact, he, uh, I don't, it's hard to say this, but he, I think he would say he loves trial because he knows what it's producing. Hmm. Uh, I think probably my favorite verse, if it's not chapter 3, verse 18, is probably chapter 4, verse 12, which we'll look at in another episode, but death is at work in us, but life in you. I'm willing to die every day so that I'm sanctified so other people experience the life of the gospel. That is a spiritual maturity that I I just dream of someday having a shred of that. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I I don't react that way very commonly to trial, but uh, we'll look at that next time. Any closing thoughts from my cohorts?
2: I did I did have one thought. Well, probably a couple. Man, there are so many implications for your philosophy of ministry. So what are like if you think? Well, it, I just I was it was arresting when we read verse four, and right here is Satan's playbook. He's yep. trying to keep you to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he he's putting all his effort into preventing people from seeing glory, like God's glory. And what made us believe was that God shone the light of his glory in our hearts so that we would see the glory of the face of Jesus. Which means Well, just that has implications that I'm still sorting out in my head in your ministry, especially if, if ministry is not going well. Well, even that statement: How do you know it's not going well? Hmm. What's your standard by which you're saying it's not going well? And is this the standard? It's really fascinating. So that that's one thought. Uh, The other thought is, it almost seems like the person who's blind to the gospel is not always ignorant or. Even not understanding the message, the comprehension could actually be quite good. It's just there's something else there. So I think of Christopher Hitchens, who's one of the four horsemen of New Atheism. He understood the gospel quite well. He just thought it was immoral. Hmm. He thought it was immoral that you could throw your sins on someone else and make them pay your penalty. He says, "I, "I can, I can pay your bill." I can I can serve your time but I can't take away your culpability and he thought it was immoral for someone to be forgiven in that way. Mm. And I think to myself, here's a guy who understands the gospel but he didn't see the glory at mm. all. So, do you think the glory is like personal application of the gospel or or maybe
0: I I'm not sure I fully understand your question, but I th- okay. I think I would the glory is, it's it's so difficult to cuz Paul's building a very intricate metaphor because I don't think we literally shine like Moses literally shined God when he represents himself in the old Testament often is bright, shining Mm -hmm. people fall down. We get that image in revelation, like this glittering throne room and um, like the tone of that being in the presence of God. But in some sense we apprehend that. And so I, I would say it starts in the changing of our hmm. affection. Hmm. It's like I start to God. God transforms me to love what Christ loves, what he loves. Yeah. And then that obviously bears itself out. And we have lots of new Testament illustration of, you know, uh, at our church right now, we're going through instruments in the Redeemer's hands by, is that trip? Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. You know, Quality. Mm. I didn't realize I said Classic. this all the time and I didn't realize maybe I got it from him, but I, I say all the time, you change the roots, you change the fruits. And he says that in one of his (laughs) chapters and I'm like, Oh, Hey, well, that's, that's good. Um, in my mind, I was not aware that I was saying it exactly how Trip was saying it. Um, but, uh, that, that's true. Like if you change the affections, Hmm. your life changes, like you do things differently. Um, and so I think part of the way we apprehend the glory of God is the changed character and that involves affections and it does involve action. It's not character can be a very intrinsic type of term. But in this sense, we're, we're looking at both sides of that coin, that it's a change of affection, which is also a change of obedience and action, um, which Tim has talked about often, you know, fear of the Lord. What is fear of the Lord? Well, it is love, but you can't fear the Lord if you disobey his law. So like it has to come together, you know, um, anyway.
1: So uh, Kevin Bowder just released an article on G Three Ministries, uh, G Three Min dot org. What do you mean relevant? Mm-hmm. So he kind of attacks this idea of the church being relevant, or people saying, "Well, we need to be relevant." Yeah. Would that intersect with like this text and the philosophy of ministry Absolutely. type of thing? Would it support Bowder and what he's saying? Or this,
0: I, so you know, without getting into a battle of of he should he said she said, um the way I've commonly said it in classes is because I bring this up in some of our discipleship classes at Faith, and some people think you have to make it relevant. You, you have to be appealing. You have to be entertaining. Uh, you use certain methods, uh, the way that you preach, the way that you interact, the type of worship or tone of worship that you have, so music, uh, those types of things. And my comment to that is always, how are you going to make holiness relevant to a sinner?
1: hmm
0: Yep. There is no amount of dressing you can put on that salad to make them eat it.
1: So would you say that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 4, 2... Second re- Corinthians. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. We've renounced... I'm in that passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have, yeah. re- we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So some of these churches that are seeking, or people are seeking to be relevant, it's a little bit of deception or...
0: Uh, so, again, I don't want to...
1: Get into I don't he don't wanna, sad, I, I said, I just want
0: to be so careful not to say someone is right, wrong, guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it is a little incongruous. So... You can take the same beat, you know, if we're going to go down the music route, so you can take a pop song and that pop song is designed to stir affections and cultivate affections a certain way. Uh, I won't name the person who says this because I don't want to put their name on something that they don't want it to be named. But there is another faculty member who would say some worship songs are more appropriate for the bedroom Mm. because of the music that's employed in them. Mm-hmm. Stirring affections in a lustful way. And so is that if you're if you're putting a music that stirs affections one way with truth that is meant to stir affection another way, you can see how that's not congruous. Like you're 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 fighting in multiple areas. Now, if you're aware of that and doing it, I think that would qualify as deceit.
1: Okay. But some people are just doing it in ignorance.
0: I think some people are.
1: yeah Yeah. okay
0: (laughs) but you know obviously we have a very conservative approach to a lot of these things and um i mean i think the case of history is on our side uh at least with the classical mindset um it's only you know the last maybe 150 years where we've gotten to this like oh music doesn't have morality um and oh that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard well they've kind of thought that for thousands of years anyway but so i that's kind of how i would Mm -hmm. i would agree with bowder's take
2: So on, on that point, I do think, so Dr. Newman always talked about breathing the cultural air. So if you walk into a room and there's a smell, you get used to it after a time and you don't smell it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it it could be, uh, that people, this is what they know, you know, and they haven't thought about it and they're not seeing it. So, so I would say there are both sides. And then secondly, I saw that tweet about the, what do you mean relevant or whatever? And I did not see who it was by because, um, Annual had posted it and they just it was just a quote. Right. And I didn't even see that it was annual and I thought, man, that sounds like Bowder. No can kidding. Can we
0: can we we're a little late huh. here just to say can you say article by Kevin Bowder one more time, Tim?
1: <laughs> article by Kevin Bowder. Why? Friend did... of the friend of the podcast. Oh yes. Okay. And
0: who posted it on Twitter?
1: Uh Scott Annual.
0: Friend of the podcast.
1: Well that's G three ministries. Yeah. Isn't? Well
2: he reshared it. Yeah. yeah. But I just thought it was cool that I mean I had him in class, what I don't know.
1: Twelve years ago, he's coming out with a new book. We need to get him on the podcast again. Ooh, what's his book? Annual. Musing on oh, God's annual. music about her. Yeah, Scott yeah. Annual is Musing on God's music.
0: Wait, if if uh, Kev Dogs listen to this, we want to get Kev him back Dogg. on here too. <laughs> I say that with all the respect in the world. Um, but anyway, so I do think there are some heavy implications, and it comes back to what Andy said. Is this be- this this is in the introduction to the Twelve Questions book? If it ever gets published, you'll read it. What, by what objective barometer do you Mm. decide you've been successful Mm. in discipleship? Well, if it's a certain behavior, did they do the behavior? What is successful discipleship? Well, you have to share the gospel. You have to be evangelistic. Well, they went and knocked on a bunch of doors. They went and shared the gospel to a bunch of people. Great. So our discipleship is successful. Well, they have to read their Bible. They have to pray. They got to go to church. They can't smoke. They can't drink. You know, fill out your list. Did you do any of those things? Nope. Did you do these right things? Yep. Successful discipleship. And I hope you can hear the facetious tone. I'm not saying those are wrong, but that is not Paul's barometer for success. Paul's barometer for success is, are you becoming the image of Christ? Do you smell like him? Do you look like him? Is the light of the glory of the knowledge of Christ visible? is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, changing you in a way of producing light so that other people in the world see it. That's his barometer for success. And that is admittedly a little subjective. It's like, cause I can't see someone's heart. Yeah. Um,
1: Which is why it's revealed when it's under pressure.
0: Exactly. And, and that's where I think successful discipleship is, is, training a pattern of godly response over years it's not evaluated in a moment of you know okay well i've been struggling with pornography and you know i was doing really well and then i had a moment of failure you know and well okay is that one moment of failure just gonna rip the discipleship out of your life and it's like uh no you what if you were looking at pornography every day and then it's like you hadn't looked in months i would say that is a progression of character Mm -hmm. Um, you know, obviously still not right. And you need to confess and walk in the spirit, but you don't evaluate success on that moment. It's, it's a lifetime where God is transforming you.
2: I can just think of a couple of people I know who that person 10 years ago in a situation would have responded in anger or shortly or without gentleness or or whatever the case is. And then you see them years and years later and it's different. Now they might be very attuned to that habitual issue they've had. I always respond shortly. I'm always not gentle. I'm very whatever. But on the outside, I'm, I'm seeing it and I'm, I'm seeing what you're saying. There's a progression yeah. of growth.
0: And I'll just, and you know, I, I, I quote, I, this does not make the book. Maybe it should, maybe I could get the guy to endorse it, but there's a really great Bill Murray quote from a movie called what about Bob and he Bill Murray is like a psychotic patient and he's going to a counselor and the, the training is like baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. And like, that's a Bill Murray, like baby steps, baby steps. And, uh, if you've never seen the movie, it's probably not worth your time. You know, I don't remember what's good in it, what's bad in it, but I thought that was funny, that quote, but, like, we wanna see people, like, we wanna snap our fingers and we want them to be changed overnight. And that mm-hmm. is just, you know, there's only two times that happens big change really quickly. When you got saved, mm-hmm. new heart, that's a big one. And when you die, yep. The rest of it is slow, slog, painstaking. Like, you look back at each day and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm changing at all. But you look back a year later and hopefully you can say with honesty, I'm not the same man I was or woman. But so that that's discipleship question 10, part three. We have one more part to that, unfortunately. Um, and then we'll eventually get to question 11 and 12. But just encourage you uh, as you listen to that, make sure you're walking in the spirit. Uh, if you're walking in the spirit, you can't screw it up.